back to another episode of Simply Amazing. Uh, I'm Tim Ryder. Joining me this evening is a member of the Mesmerized family. Uh, he's a writer. He's an outstanding tweeter uh, and still a part-time pitcher. My friend Jack Hendon. What's happening, man? Not much, Tim. Good to, good to be here. How you doing? Doing good. Enjoyed a nice Sunday. Um, watched some football. The Giants and Jets were just ultimately disappointing. So, uh, yeah. But the rest of the day was all right. <laughs> yeah. I uh, I wanted to get around to watching the Jets-Giants game. My fantasy football team is abysmal. So it was sort of – I mean, I had like Daniel Jones as my starting QB. He actually got a few points, but um, I couldn't actually bring myself to watch the two teams um, just – I mean, disappointing. It, it seemed like on both ends of the spectrum, people were upset. You know, Jet fans. It's just, it's just one of those games where you win because the other team loses. That sort of thing. Yeah, um, it was not. It was not great football. Yeah, <laughs> they had their moments, but let's get into the Mets because we got mm-hmm. a few things on the docket for today. Um, we're going to talk about free agency. We're going to talk about some of the Mets' needs. Uh, some of the Mets should be wants. Maybe some guys that the team should shy away from. Before we jump into that, there's been a little bit of movement in the quest to fill out Carlos Beltran's. Uh, Gumshoe, Jacob Resnick, sleuthed out Jerry Naren's name on Brody. Now he's got an interview. Um, I think it's pretty important, yeah. Um, I definitely give a damn. Um, I think that, as we saw between 2018 and 2019, the way that um, we sort of assumed that having Jim Riggleman was going to, you know, be the, the kick in the ass that Mickey Calloway needed to, you know, understand National League managing. Um, that didn't really happen. Um, it almost made no difference. If any, it made a, a negative difference, I'd say, um, especially considering we're back with, you know, the inexperienced manager. You do want somebody who... Um, you know, somebody who's going to make the right calls and knows what's best um, in the, I guess, grander scheme of things. Um, me personally, uh, I'm not super big on it's got to be an outside hire. I, I, for one, really like Luis Rojas. Um, I think that he has a lot to offer, not only in his experience, because he's been in the Mets system for about 12 years, but uh, he knows this organization. He he knows the players that have come up through it. He knows the pitchers. Um, and he also knows analytics. Um, I think that there's really nothing that could go wrong or could backfire uh, having him behind Beltron. Um, obviously, that, that does something for your quality control you know, spot. That obviously goes away, and you want to make sure that things are still going well. But... I, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I really wouldn't be upset. In fact, I'd probably be pretty happy if Rojas is the guy the Mets land on. I don't know about you, though. You see, I, I'd be fine with that. I, I've been pumping Beltran Rojas since well before Carlos was hired. Um, I, I guess, you know, some of the backlash is going to come from, oh, Beltran's a rookie manager. He needs an experienced bench coach. And like you were saying, we saw that even with Riggleman by his side, Callaway wasn't much better with that experience next to him. Um, I think that adding Rojas, as you were saying, it would leave a hole in the quality control side. I kind of think that that would actually streamline it a little bit. I guess it would streamline it more. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Rojas is used to receiving that information from the front office. He can go ahead and turn that right to the into the clubhouse. There's no buffer anymore. There's no conduit anymore. He's kind of just your, I guess, uh, you're, you're inside man if you're from the front office looking into the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he, he seems like he has a very good grasp on how to interpret this information, as does Beltran. And that takes us into our next guy, um, Jeremy Hefner. Mark yeah. Harrig of the, uh, the Athletic reported on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's scheduled to interview for the Mets' vacant pitching coach position. Uh, considering his, you know, affinity for analytics, we've got to be excited about that, right? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, he's analytically inclined. He's a, you know, he's a former Met. Um, you know, he's a pretty recent pitcher. Um, I believe he retired in 2015. He had a few like shoulder and elbow problems. Um, never really did much after he was a Met, but he is familiar with this league in a way that with 
all the respect in the world to Phil Regan, I think, you know, there is something that Hefner offers there that would be really, really exciting and really different. Um, also helps that he came here for a minute, you know, he would come here from Minnesota. I think what they have going on um, in terms of their player development and their coaching staff, um, they're currently, they, they, they really do have it down. Uh, they know what they're doing. I think that, you know, you've seen with the twins, the sort of results they've gotten the last two or three years out sort of, you know, not fully productive pitchers, but still pitchers who had potential guys like Jose Barrios, um, you know, Kyle Gibson, Trevor May is another one. Uh, these are, you know, pretty formidable arms at, you know, the front of their rotation and bullpen respectively. Um, I, I don't see how you can't credit Hefner for something like that and how furthermore you can't get excited about the prospect of that coming to New York. Um, guys like a Selman, uh, you know, guys like Seawald even, I think could really benefit from having sort of a younger, uh, a younger guy in there, um, especially one who understands analytics. Well, yeah, that relatability is so important. Mm-hmm. And the, the talent level that's here, which doesn't really seem to be changing much through the offseason, they're going to add a couple of pieces. They're going to have to possibly replace Wheeler. We'll see how that plays out. But, you know, this this group performed very well under Regan last year. Right. Um, I guess under Island, they were, uh, I guess you could say middling. Uh, yeah. Once once Regan took over, uh, pretty much immediately, um, the Mets were, you know, top the NL in team uh, staff ERA and wins above replacement. You know, like I said, the talent's here. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all comes back down to streamlining and taking that information from the front office and the analytics department and bringing it to the players. And uh, mm-hmm. a guy like Hefner, like despite his age or his inexperience or whatever people want to point to, this yeah. guy's proven to be able to take that information and pass it along effectively. And that's really mm-hmm. half the battle here. Um, yeah. I, he spoke to mesmerized Matthews, uh, mesmerized Matthew Brownstein last mm-hmm. summer. Yeah. I, and I took away one part of his, I guess just one little sentence uh, of his quotes with, with Matthew, which is a great read. Everybody could just look it up on, on mesmerized or Google. Um, just like we used to say, I guess, like guys with high spin rates who throw hard, mm-hmm. we used to, I'm speaking in, in first person as, as Hefner, we used to say that guy throws a heavy ball. And it just, it goes to show the, the I guess, the transfer of terms. That's all. It's still the mm-hmm. same idea. And, and he's able to bridge that gap. But I yeah. mean, first of all, as a player who came through the organization or who came through the majors and the minors, when this wasn't really such a big part or the analytical side wasn't such a big part of the equation. And then through the end of his career and into his coaching and advisory and scouting career, it kind of blew up. And he was able to grasp that um, so much quicker because he had firsthand experience. And I think that's kind of the direction that Brody and the organization is going. They want to be able to streamline that that information path and um you know hopefully it has good results but you know mm-hmm. the, the the big thing is getting the most out of the players and filling the holes that the the roster might have going into the off season and that brings us right into our next segment <laughs> um clearly the Mets have holes to fill they have um I, I guess you could say limited funds uh, they do have options. They have ways they can get around that. They have uh, possible trade options out there. And, you know, we'll touch on all that. But what we really want to focus on today is the free agency side of things. Yeah. Um, as I said, the Mets have right around $17 million, uh to spend as of right now before they reach the luxury tax threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, as first-time offenders, if they were to go over that threshold, the penalty is 20% on the total that you go over. So this year's total, this year's threshold is 208 million. If the Mets, let's say, go to 210, 210 million, go over the luxury tax, they'll pay on 2 million, they'll pay $400,000. Uh, that's a drop in the bucket to win a World Series. So, mm-hmm. um, limited, sure, you gotta work with a limited budget, that's fine, but there's still good players that we can go out and get. I wanna start with the positional side, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of debate on which way the Mets should go here. Um, my my first question to you, Jack, is do you see Brandon Nimmo as a viable center field candidate 
in-house as opposed to going out and spending money on a not-so-enticing um, free agent field when it comes to a true center field. Yeah, um, 100%. I, I understand watching Nimmo run around in the outfield sometimes, especially because we were so spoiled watching Juan Lagares. Um, watching him make throws and before, you know, really before that in like 2016, 2015, you know, even watching Cespedes, it was, it was a different experience. And I understand the concern about Nimmo, but I don't see among any of these options in center field right now that are free agents. I mean, really the best guys that you can look at are, I, I mean, John Jay or Adam Jones. I mean, it's that there's no possible scenario going into this year, even really going into last year, I'd say, where any of those guys, if you were to sign them, uh, would be as productive as Brandon Nimmo was. Um, I think even given what happened to Nimmo the first half of the year, I think he showed you in that last month or two that, uh, you know, he really did work around that. Um, and he did, you know, bounce back. His OPS upon his return was... Um, I believe it was over 900. Uh, really didn't skip a beat. I think he's so important in that lineup. Um, whatever argument you got to make about defense, because you know it's it is valid. He's he his ultimate zone rating, his defensive run saved. They're not what we were used to with Lagarde, and they're not what Beltron was. You know, 12, 13 years ago, he's not going to win a Gold Glove anytime soon. To you know, to put it nicely, but he's he's such a force at the plate that like I can work around that. If you're going to insist that someone like JD Davis um, or even Robinson Cano at this point is a capable enough hitter to play every day, I really don't see how you could not also make that argument about Nimmo. Uh, Cause he's shown you, I mean, there's, there's really no way to pitch to him once he gets to two strikes. There's no way to keep him off the base paths. I mean, that's somebody that, is so valuable at the top of the order. I, I I really don't understand, and I try to be nice about it. The whole fourth outfielder talk, it just blows my mind because it's like right now every center fielder on the market is a fourth outfielder. I mean, I could go through the list. It's, you know, it's the Gerard Dysons and Billy Hamiltons and, you know, Cameron Mabins. It's like really we have limited funds. We can't, we can't spill that uh, because we're concerned about, you know, Brandon Immo striking out or, you know, not, not catching balls over his head. I just, I, yeah, little embellished there, but that's sort of how I feel. No, but I, I think you're right on the right track there. Um, I'm, I'm fine with Nimmo playing center field because the offensive side uh, is more than sufficient. The defense will certainly get the team by, um, you know, is it Juan Lagares in his prime type of defense? No. And that's okay. We can get by without that. I think with Beltran in the fold, um, outfield positioning and outfield shading and, and, and how these guys prepare for each at bat and each pitch, I think that's going to be a focus of this coaching staff. And I think that's going to play well with guys like Conforto and Nimmo, who are just absolute sponges. And mm-hmm. you throw McNeil in left field, um, where he played terrific last season. He was the only Mets outfielder with a positive defensive run saved. Mm-hmm. Um, it leaves a spot at third base. Um, I spoke a little bit over the weekend about Josh Donaldson on Metsmerized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that would be the guy that the Mets would need to splurge on. And, you know, they could backload his contract and stuff like that and try to make it work. But with the offense he brings and the defense he brings at third base, you slide a guy like J.D. Davis onto the bench in a full-time bench role, and, you know, you let him work at his fielding at third, at first, at in the corner outfield spots, and get him his reps. And um, I think you can really make it work and then maybe, you know, work around in the bullpen and try to find some, I don't want to say bargain bin arms, but maybe some some great value arms. Like, you know, they don't have to go top tier. They just need to get the right guys. I know we've said that before on the show. It's so important that they go out and spend the right money. Like, go, okay, cool, go out and spend money. But we saw them go out and spend money so many times, and it never works out right. So um, I just hope they put the right level of uh, preparation into these into their signings. But do you feel like Josh Donaldson at third, one, is it realistic? Mm-hmm. And two, would it 
I mean, I, I think naturally it would improve the team, but is it feasible for a team that's strapped on cash to make that type of commitment, make that type of take that type of risk on a player into his thirties? Mm-hmm. Um, where, where where do you stand on it? I well, I really like Donaldson. Uh, I'll start there. I don't think that there is really any qualms about how he's going to produce if he comes to the Mets. The dude's a, a complete wall at third base. You can't put anything past him. Uh, we saw what he could do at the plate plenty of times against us, um, but he had a lot of success against other teams too as a Brave. I think that when he's playing every day, he's a phenomenal option. My one concern about Donaldson, you know, the obvious thing is that we are strapped for cash. This is a situation where – um, you know, we can acquire him the way that uh, maybe we thought we could acquire Todd Frazier two years ago where we managed a, a team-friendly deal. I think that even under the most suspicious of circumstances where this guy is available in February, I, I don't think that um, it's all that likely. And I think with that in mind, the other question you do have to ask is that, you know, there is sort of a trickle-down effect with the team's depth if you move Jeff McNeil to left field because I think the underlying you know excuse that the team will use and it's it's a you know it's not an unreasonable excuse by any means but what they'll tell you in March when they haven't signed anybody if that happens they're going to say we trust Jeff McNeil at third base and we trust J.D. Davis in left field and we trust Dom Smith to supplement J.D. Davis in left field if something you know needs to be done there I think a situation where Donaldson comes in and McNeil goes to left and Davis sort of assumes, you know, a utility role that, you know, a lot of that you need to consider what happens to Dom Smith at that point and even Jed Lowry for that matter, because you have two more expendable options whose value you can't really decipher in a, you know, in the, in the trading aspect of this because ultimately probably one of them is going to need to get dealt to make Donaldson happen. Um, Not so much, you know, for salary reasons as much for just, you know, the, in the interest of getting um, resources back that you can use, you know, to maybe sign another reliever or, or trade, you know, flip whoever you get back for Dom Smith or Jed Lowry to, you know, trade for somebody else. So I think that um, that's got to be something that, we think about when we're looking at what position we decide to fill. Cause really when it comes down to it, we're only going to have, you know, I think there'll be room for something to happen in the rotation, whether Wheeler's here or not. I think that's one area that's definitely going to be addressed. Um, and then after that, you really only have one choice. I think unless you want to just wear whatever financial, you know, risk, you know, taxes come your way, I think that they're really going to only have one choice between third base, uh, bullpen, center field, and also, you know, catcher too, if that's something they're interested in. I guess going after a catcher is going to be tough. And I guess like we've, we've talked about a couple of times, I know Rob Pearsall put us, put something out on Metsmerize today. Uh, the Mets would need to at least find a taker on Wilson Ramos. That might be tough. I mean, he's got a, a very team-friendly contract, and he certainly produced at the plate last year, but he's a, uh, a defensive liability, no question. Um, you're right. They're going to have to address the starting rotation. Uh, they're going to have to do something in the bullpen. Um, let's let's talk about Wheeler for a second, because his deadline to accept or reject the qualifying offer is coming up. If he accepts, great. Um, I think there's still a little bit of hope that he might. Uh, do we see the Mets still being in on him if he rejects it? It's tricky. It, it It is a tricky question because I think for Wheeler, getting $17 million in the qualifying offer, $17.8 million, I think that's what it is now. They, they brought it down a little bit, but – yeah. You know, that's sort of where the Mets initial offer for him is going to be. That's how he and his agents are going to look at it. So really, if they can't get Wheeler for 17 million, there's no there's no situation where as a free agent, um, 
you know, I guess unless we see what's happened the last two off seasons where, you know, teams kind of stonewall, you know, talented free agents in a kind of suspect way, you know, that's still the baseline of 17 million. The Mets aren't going to be able to, you know, woo him over for less money um, so that they can possibly work in, you know, improving other areas without, you know, I think deterring him. Um, if, you know, if he's not taking 17 million from the Mets, he's going to want something similar um, or better from a team that can't afford it. Um, and I, you know, I think that's what's tricky about it is that, you know, if he accepts it, accepts the qualifying offer, that's great because he's here and we don't need to worry about replacing him, you know, for 2020. But there is at that point the concern about, well, that's 17 million. And at that point, I think that would literally put them within 2 million of the uh, the constraint. If that's even, it may even just get them to the constraint at that point. Um, so it's, it's difficult to sort of gauge that. And really a lot of it is going to depend on how owners and how general managers across the league approach free agents this year. Me personally, um, I really wouldn't be surprised if there are guys like Wheeler, guys like Kyle Gibson, guys like Jake Odorizzi who are waiting for contracts the way Dallas Keuchel was last year. I think that, you know, the climate for free agents right now is really stressful. That may explain why Wheeler eventually does accept the offer, but um, it's definitely something that I think any baseball fan should be concerned about because uh, it's now affecting the way that we forecast what's going to happen to the rest of our team. Well, sure. And I guess that, that, that draft pick attached and the one-time qualifying offer deal, you know, that could soften Wheeler's market considerably. Um, it might be in his best interest after an up and down 2019 um, to accept the offer. I guess I was saying the last week, last time we were on the show, gamble on himself and um, go into free agency next year without a draft pick attached to him, hopefully coming off a, a more successful season. Mm-hmm. Um, or more, more consistent season, maybe I should say, because he still found a lot of success in 2019. But, um, yeah, I still think it is realistic that he does come back. And I, I, I want to say, as a fan, I want to say, yes, I hope the Mets go after him if he does reject the offer. I do think that he does at least start out outside of the Mets, uh, I guess I should say budget. Mm-hmm. Um, but if he is, you know, if his, if his market does come down and he is struggling to find four years, 60 million, um, you know, if the Mets swoop in with 345, 350, backload it, of course, because there's so much money coming off the books over the next couple of years. Um, I think they could make that work and he might be the best option out there. Mm-hmm. I do like a Keiko and I'm very intrigued to see what happens with him this offseason, considering there is no pick attached to him. Uh, I thought he pitched well in Atlanta once he got his feet wet. And, um, yeah, he's certainly a, a, a good option. I'd like to, I guess, him as a, <laughs> I guess, theoretically as a fifth starter, it, whether it be him or Matt's down at the bottom, um, that's a full rotation. And, and the Mets can go really any direction there. Like we said before, it depends on where they want to spend their money. but um, they have options. Uh, is there any? Uh, I guess. I, I guess I should say, are there any mid-tier starters that you think might be appealing to this rotation or to this staff, or uh, might fit a, a fit a particular need well? Um, well, that's a good question. I think that it's it's tough to define mid-tier um, because Steven Strasburg becoming a free agent kind of affects that. Uh, in its own way. I think when you look at top tier, you're thinking about guys like Strasburg, Garrett Cole, um, potentially guys like Wheeler and Mad Bum as well. I, per, one person that I think is really sort of flying under the radar here is Kyle Gibson. Um, he sort of has followed, statistically, he's kind of followed the same trajectory as Zach Wheeler the last two seasons. He's um, it hasn't really translated as successfully in 2019. He did have a 484 ERA, um, but he did strike out more guys per nine. He walked fewer per nine, and he barely gave up more homers per nine. I mean, his FIP is, you know, 
pretty regularly sitting in the low fours, which compared to Wheeler, it's, it is a step down. Um, I think that really replacing anyone with Wheeler, you know, replacing Wheeler with anybody that isn't Wheeler um, has a better chance at this rate of being a step down. I think that he would be one of the safest options though um, among sort of downgrades that wouldn't derail the rotation. It wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be as catastrophic as say, you know, going after 36 year old Cole Hamels or, you know, God forbid going after someone like, you know, um, like Tanner Roark again, people who, who have regressed pretty badly and are only getting older. Um, I think that that's really what the Mets need to stray away from. If anything is, uh, settling for somebody who's very low, um, on the list simply because they can't really make up ground for someone that's high on the list. Well, how do you feel about like a low risk deal on say, uh, a Felix Hernandez who might, who's definitely not the same Felix Hernandez we saw five years ago or three years ago at that, but would come on the cheap and has maybe an incentive laden deal. And and Jacob Resnick brought this up to me a few weeks ago and it's kind of been lingering in the back of my head. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't be totally against it, but it would have to be the right sort of deal. Um, another guy who I would bring up is Alex Wood. Um, missed pretty much all of last season with injury. But before that, I mean, he's pretty much a steady middle middle threes ERA guy. Mm-hmm. Um, his durability issues would – I mean, he's only 29. He'll be entering his 30-year-old season. Um, his durability issues, sure, it's a risk on the Mets end if they were to, to give him a shot, but – um, I think that his value or his the risk value would would reflect that. I think that they would be able to bring him in on on a not necessarily well maybe a cheap deal. I don't think he would settle for a minor league deal, but um, I think this is a guy who can settle into a number five spot awfully well. And uh, if you put him in low pressure spots, you know, not 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 necessarily low leverage, but um, easing back into the major league life because again he missed pretty much a full season he only made a couple of appearances last season but uh, i'm okay with kind of surveying the lower levels and um i'm pretty much reserved to the fact that the coles and the strasburgs and the rendones are pretty much out of the picture Mm -hmm. if that changes and brody really wants to shake things up great but um yeah they have to be smart and I know we're going to harp on that word for a long time but they really do they have to take the right approach to this Mm -hmm. um Outside of the rotation, of course, there's bullpen needs. There's not going to be a ton of shakeup with the, I guess, the personnel who's there, but additions are going to have to be made. I think Seawald um, might have seen his last days here. Uh, I, you know, you'd be hard pressed to see um, uh, who's the right hander. Great slider. Sure. I, oh. I'm sorry. No, forget. Yeah, it. I, I, yeah, I can't. Boy, I can't think of his name. Bachelor, I'm sorry. Yeah, Bachelor. I love, love Bachelor stuff, and um, I just I would like to see the back end of the bullpen or the front end of the bullpen, maybe I should put it, filled with more reliable arms. And I think there's a couple of options out there, um, who could fit into the Mets budget. And uh, let's let's start with you, Jack. Who are your who are your targets for the uh, for the Mets bullpen that could possibly be a financial and a uh i guess a role or cog type fit mm-hmm. i was well i was really on the will harris train and i was a big fan of drew pomerantz but uh you know what's sort of happened the last month of the season um in pomerantz's case he sort of lit it up with the brewers i mean he was incredible with them um and you know now ken rosenthal is basically tweeting his average annual value is you know, one of the higher ones that's expected right now among relievers. Then you have, you know, what Harris did in the postseason, which, you know, you forget about game seven. He really was one of their most reliable pitchers. Um, I don't think either guy is really affordable at this point, which, uh, like, again, it's, it's, it's frustrating that it boils down to that, that we sort of need to, you know, rest on our laurels, you know, over the fact that, it's it's not realistic. It's not financially feasible. Um, but I am a big uh, fan of long relief options, guys who can give you multiple innings, who, you know, basically what Seth Lugo was going into 2018, which was somebody who, 
could sort of be whoever you needed him to be because he had the stamina to do it. Um, that sort of morphed into a setup role or a closer who can go two innings, that sort of deal. Um, when I think about that, I think about a free agent like Colin McHugh. Um, Mike Myers talked a lot about him. Um, I think he wrote an article either this week or last week about you know the benefits of pursuing someone like him. I think that uh, the strides he made in Houston were you know pretty pretty significant and I think that you know following him on Twitter he's a big Phil Regan fan um he's very close with him I think the prospect of him coming to an organization that even if the guy's not the pitching coach they still have Regan in there um that could be beneficial it could definitely be a good marriage I'm a big fan of of Colin McHugh another guy that I really like um as a potential long relief role and it's it's interesting because he sort of profiles as a starter, and he eats a lot of innings. Uh, but Martin Perez with Minnesota had a really interesting year. Uh, his velocity went up. Uh, his pitch values went up. This was someone who I think at one point we saw him pitch against the Mets, and he actually had pretty good numbers in his uh, over that season. I mean, they, they really used him as a starter. Um you know, the FIP is still in the 460s. I really shouldn't say that the numbers are that good, but as a reliever, you saw somebody who, through a point in the season, was very comfortable. Um, you know, his first three outings were relief outings. Um, they, they did take a while. He's someone that I would offer a minor league deal, to put it that way. Um, he's interesting, not so much on a statistical level, but in terms of potential, I think he'd be cool. I also think that Jeremy Jeffress could be uh, an intriguing target. He had a pretty brutal season. Um, if I'm not mistaken, he had some shoulder problems that sort of lingered and, and derailed what he had going for him. But, um, you know, when it was all said and done, he still did have a 396 fifth. Uh, he still averaged 2.9 walks per nine innings. This wasn't somebody who completely lost a feel for the baseball. Um, his high leverage numbers, even in 2019, were still great. I chalk some of what happened this year for him up to overuse. Um, he, if he had been a free agent after 2018, uh, which was a year that he posted an ERA of you know 129, that's what it says on Baseball Ref. He'd be commanding what Will Harris is commanding right now, or a Drew Pomerantz, or a you know, or a um, I'm I'm forgetting who, but um, um. You'll have to help me out here. Daniel Hudson, um, you know, these are guys that are going to command a lot more. I, I think that someone like Jeffress, though, is not that far removed from success and really would be extremely low risk. Um, not minor league level low risk, but somebody who you could give an incentive laden deal and, and make out like a like a bandit with. Well, I guess I'm right there with you with with Will Harris. Um, very impressed by his splits. Uh, there are no splits. He's effective against everybody. Yeah. 603 OPS versus right-handers last year. 490 OPS versus left-handers. Uh, OPS against, I should say. Uh, McHugh, same thing. He's a righty who's so effective against lefties. Uh, 174, 278, 371 slash against last year against lefties. Um, 267 ERA as a reliever. Again, like you were saying, he's very versatile. Um, if you want to go lower levels, I like, I really do like Joe Smith and I don't know if he's going to end up being a lower level guy just because of his consistency. Mm-hmm. But, um, I'd love to see Will, Joe Smith come home. Um, here's a guy. How about Dellen Patances? Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> Full on, yes. That's a 100% yes. Yeah. He's coming off of an injury played season, only pitched one inning last year and then blew out his Achilles celebrating the strikeout. Right. Um, I believe he'll be ready for spring training-ish, but I don't know that for sure. There was a picture circulating last week of Carlos Beltran and uh, his former teammate with the Mets, Jose Reyes, floating around with Dellen Batances around the city. I, do you, I guess all this talk about filling holes and stuff, and don't you think throwing Batantis in there with Diaz and Lugo and and Familia and Wilson wouldn't that just be like an all star bullpen? And it kind of just bring everybody up. Wouldn't that be that? It, feel, it feels like it would be that type of move. Yeah, I mean, I think it would be something that would put them 
over the top in terms of projectability um, because you at that point have three guys that you've acquired to pitch a ninth inning if they need to. Guys, you know, it would be Diaz, Familian, Batantis, but then you have pretty stable options beneath them in Seth Lugo and Justin Wilson. I think that there's still some risk with someone like Robert Kesselman because his role really hasn't been defined since he's, you know, become a reliever with the Mets. Um, they've sort of made him do everything, and I think that's contributed to some of the, you know, um, the health problems um, within the last year. But well, I, well, wouldn't wouldn't you want to see? I guess they were just talking recently about maybe Lugo and Gazelle moving into the rotation. Um, Lugo, I think that's a hard no for me. Mm-hmm. But Gazelle, I'm very intrigued to see him maybe try to shift back into that role and be that quote-unquote long man or versatile guy or spot starter, how, kind of however you need him, because he's a spin rate, um, he's a spin rate you know, stud. Mm-hmm. Uh, the spin rate on his curve is very highly rated against other pitchers. Um, I really feel like he could be that sort of guy. Um, do you see him getting a shot as a fifth starter or kind of leave him in that kind of back-and-forth type of role? I think I'm more inclined to keep him, um, I think, toward the front of that bullpen um, simply because he hasn't really ever been a, a dynamic and consistent starter since he assumed a full-time role as a big leaguer. Like 2016, yes, that was he was very clutch then. Uh, you know, the the numbers were good. He helped get us to the postseason, but – I think everything that's followed since then, I mean, the the year after he really couldn't, you know, locate his, his pitches. He's had issues with secondary command. Um, I don't know if transitioning him into the rotation, even at its best, you know, even in the best case scenario, I don't think that's a situation where it would make up for someone like Wheeler walking and guys like, you know, um, guys like Odorizzi and Kyle Gibson and even guys like Alex Wood or Felix Hernandez walking, I don't think it would make up for that. Um, I think that what you would have is somebody who can maybe do what Chad Green has done for the Yankees, which is obviously much more beneficial than what he's been to this point. Um, But I don't know if the change would be, I think, that stable and I, I I do question what that would do to the bullpen moving either of them out of it um, because I think like I said having guys that will give you innings is very valuable in that aspect and replacing someone like a Selman um, I wouldn't consider it a replacing him with Batances, for example. I would have expected the Mets, if they get Batances and move Gaselman to the rotation, that they would pursue somebody else to sort of Complement or I guess replace the spot that Kasselman leaves. Um, I I something about the risks that you take there, acquiring another pitcher and you giving another free agent money, especially a free agent reliever, because it's something that I think time has shown you. Um, I have like a spreadsheet that I put up earlier in August that basically shows every, you know, multi-year or one-year deal where the average annual value was over, you know, $5 million, those deals, uh, they work out about a quarter of the time. Um, I really don't like the idea of rolling the dice again, um, you know, because of budgetary concerns. Because I think that when it comes down to it, the performance has more of an impact on what happens. Really, it has more of an impact of what happens on the field the next few years. It it will affect the general direction of this team in a way that going over the, you know, the luxury tax constraint does. Um, you know, you sort of take your slap on the wrist if you get over the $210 million, but, you know, and you're going to have to trade. A, what perfect example, I think, would be um, – what the team had to do with Anthony Swarzak um, after 2018. You know, they signed him to that, I believe it was a $16 million deal. The average annual value was $8 million, and he was going to sort of come in with who they had already had acquired in A.J. Ramos um, to sort of beef up that bullpen 
and it couldn't have gone worse. You know, he had, he had health problems. I, I don't necessarily pin it on him, but they had to use him as bait, you know, to make a trade for Robinson Cano and Edwin Diaz. I think that that was sort of a an end that, you know, the front office didn't foresee happening when they first acquired him. Um, and it worked out for them in a sense because they didn't have to worry about him pitching next year. But, you know, it's sort of with that burden came another burden because now they have, you know, they have this giant albatross contract with Robinson Cano. So I think that it has effects. It, it's a slippery slope is, is what I'm trying to say. Um, and I'm it kind, kind of, of it, it always is a slippery slope, though. And I, I'd love to see that that spreadsheet because mm-hmm. I mean, that that's that's data. And uh, it all comes down to that smart money, man. You got to spend it, spend it wisely. That's it. I'll send it to you right now. Yeah, it's um, it's really all about. And I think that that's sort of where I've kind of taken my, you know, latest project on Twitter with, you know, sort of less expensive relief options, because I really believe that um, it's not about winning an auction, improving your bullpen. It is it's it's much more about you know, improving specific areas um, and sort of smoothing over, you know, rough patches that you, you know, you've dealt with. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's a good segue into that aspect of, you know, we've been talking about uh, with like affordable options, but I sort of have a whole thread that I'm sure you've seen and other people have seen about affordable relief pitchers. I did see it, and there were a couple of very intriguing names there. Um, the first guy I wanted to ask you about was Carl Edwards Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's, yeah, I do want to hear the rest of your guys because all of them are, are pretty viable options. And like you said, they all bring a certain wrinkle or a certain dynamic um, mm-hmm. that the Mets were lacking in last season. But uh, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and pass that over to you because I'm curious to hear about a few of these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, I'm trying to find the full thread. Um, just so I can get my stats in a row. But really, you know, the goal that I have in putting this together, it's it's really not a they should sign each of these guys. Each of them needs a contract and, you know, it'll work out that way. Like, you you know, throwing options at the wall, like that's not really going to, you know, I understand that that's not feasible um, and I don't expect it to be like that. But I do believe that, you know, as time has shown, even with the Mets, I mean, we, you know, a perfect example would be Addison Reed um, of somebody that the Mets acquired who at the time, I mean, in 2015, when they traded for him, he had been like recalled from AAA because he'd just been struggling so badly um, with Arizona up to that point. Like you have someone who has potential, though, the fastball is life, you know. He's, he's, he's liked by scouts, but he doesn't really have any more chances with his team. And, you know, he's kind of on waivers. He's on a bubble. Those are guys that I'm looking at, people that really under different circumstances would probably get more opportunities to prove themselves. Um, maybe the way that the Mets have tried to make it happen with Paul Seawald. Um, and, like, of course, that hasn't worked out. But Seawald continues to get options be- and he gets looks because – he has certain features that are useful. We've seen the way the slider works. Um, we've seen the way he can pitch to right-handed batters. That's, you know, really beneficial, and they want to get something out of that. So with that said, a few pitchers that I'm looking at, and, you know, the goal really is to have more than just relief pitchers, but that's kind of where affordability makes the most sense. guy that I really like is A.J. Cole. Um, he's sort of had a career transformation of sorts uh, ever since he left the Washington Nationals. He's somebody who used to pitch against the Mets a lot in 2015 and 2016. Never had great numbers, never really had great velos either. He sat very low 90s, didn't have great spin rate, um, but that's changed since he left. Uh, he spent a few, you know, a few weeks with the Yankees um, and got off to a pretty good start and then kind of turned that around with Cleveland too. Um I mean, you, I'm looking at his numbers now. Um, you know, the strikeouts per nine is what first really comes out um, when you look at, you know, potential because he pretty much brought his numbers up from seven and eight per nine to, you know, 10, mid-11 per nine. Um, 
he's he's brought the walks down with that as well. I mean, these are these are the sorts of trends that I think you really want to look for is guys who get a feel back, even if they don't necessarily have a team. Um, he's developed a pretty good um, a pretty good slider. Um, and his changeup is also pretty successful. It's it's gotten some outs too. I think that when you have someone who has off speeds that you can work with, um, especially with the you know way the team has developed pitchers in recent years, you you do have somebody who could come in and, and serve a kind of role that I mean for Cole it's probably not the seventh eighth inning guy that Addison Reed was, but maybe more so someone like Carlos Torres. Whereas years ago, who I don't know if Mets fans really remember him that well, but there was a time when um, he first came up where he was like the strangest version of unhittable. Um, he was, you know, they, they kind of like, in that sense, extracted a really good pitcher out of him because he had those sorts of tools. And they gave him a minor league deal and nobody knew who he was, you know, in spring training. No one knew who he was when they first promoted him. But you kind of, you know, you got used to him, and eventually he grew into a more regular role. I think that's um, guys like AJ Cole, guys like Carl Edwards can are perfectly capable of doing that, even if uh, they haven't totally put it together with the first, you know, few teams they played for. Edwards, especially, he's someone who still gets, you know, some pretty good numbers with the curveball uh, in terms of spin rate, um, and that's something that I think the Mets are really lacking right now. Um, in that bullpen, because aside from Lugo, they don't really have someone who's who's developed a plus off speed that they can use consistently. That's sort of what Edwards has been um, pretty much his whole career, even through like the rougher patches with Chicago that kind of led to his ouster. You still have somebody um, who can make that kind of pitch. I mean, the the closest example I can think of is you know, Justin Wilson's cutter maybe or what Edwin Diaz's slider was supposed to be. But um, if you look at just results that have stood the test of time, Edwards with his curveball, um, and even Cole the last few weeks or not weeks, um, months of that season with his slider, those are things that uh, you really ought to run with if you're trying to scout cheaper options. Oh, for sure. And I like the way that Cole, um, he's so effective against right-handers, um, He's a strikeout threat, but he doesn't necessarily rely on the strikeout. Uh, he, he's crafty. It seems like he's a, a – and, again, this is outside looking in, and I haven't done a whole ton of research on him, but just, it seems like he's a thinking pitcher. And um, if that's the approach that this team and the organization kind of wants to take, which is kind of looks like that's the direction they're going, um, I think that could be a solid addition. And, uh, again, like I was saying, a guy like Edwards really intrigues me. I think that um, – like you said, his off-speed stuff would really play well. I think that the – I don't know if you can remember back to the mid-2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, you had so much chemistry and almost like a – and even – you can even go into, um, I guess, the end of 2018, the second half of 2018, when the pitching staff was doing so well. Mm-hmm. It almost becomes almost like a competition. Everyone's trying to one-up the guy ahead of him. I know Terry Collins was a big proponent of this. He used to say it all the time. You have um, you have guys who are just kind of open to suggestion. They want to do well. They want to keep up with the rest of the pack. I think that bringing in a guy with certain strengths that the team was lacking would let, you know, a Gazelman, who has a terrific curveball and great spin rate, um, really kind of hone that and yeah. get the consistency that, that he was lacking and someone like an Edwards who, you know, if so facto would be, <laughs> you like that. Uh, it was the, uh, the Goodman from, from yeah. dodgeball. <laughs> uh, it's something like that where Gizelma wouldn't necessarily be pitching for his job, but it's certainly somebody nipping in his heels. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that would extract better results. I think yeah. competition breeds excellence and that's that's a proven thing. It's gonna mm-hmm. keep everybody on their toes. And um you know, when you have guys who not necessarily underperforming, but like we said, just not performing consistently. Yeah. And you bring in guys who can bring consistency or at least get their specific jobs done, it's mm-hmm. gonna get everybody, you know, it's gonna pick up the pace and it's gonna get everybody a little bit more focused and um that's kinda why I'd like to see the back end of the rotation get shored up in a yeah. in a in, in an efficient way. Just someone who's ready for that challenge. Um mm-hmm. where they go with it, 
we shall see. Um, any other miners guys that were on your, on your radar? Um, well, I was thinking a little bit about Jay Jackson also. He's sort of somebody that I kind of started my thread off with. Um, he's had a very like interesting career to this point. Um, he's pitched in Japan. Uh, he had great numbers in Japan. That's sort of part of why he came back. Um, he had one of the better sliders in baseball last year. And, the, you know, the sample wasn't that limited. I'll look over it again. It's been a, a few weeks since I first um, kind of unearthed what he had. But, um, I mean, yeah, it's it's about 30 innings of work. Um, nearly 14 strikeouts per nine innings. You know, the FIP is 466 and the ERA is 445. I mean, you can understand why someone like this is a free agent. Um go right into game logs though and you kind of realize that you know you take out his first three outings where um he pretty much combined to give up five runs and barely two innings of work um you have someone who suddenly you know has a 321 era and the ops is 644 against i mean that's these are things that you know wayside when people look at statistics because it's all in the aggregate but i mean that's a that's sort of an example of somebody that, you know, could come in and, and pick up off of that kind of success that he had with Milwaukee. Um, you know, obviously, if you want to look at guys who have had success here already, Brad Brock kind of had a similar transition, you know, got released from Chicago, you know, hadn't really pitched with successful results um, in nearly two years to that point. But you knew it was somebody who had it in him. Um and you just sort of give them a few, you know, you give them a few innings um, to just get comfortable and maybe a less defined role. Um, and they and they produce. Um, so Jay Jackson is another person who I who I would definitely consider looking at. He's a very easy minor league deal to foresee um, or maybe a one year deal with, you know, a, a baseline of, you know, three to four million annually, something along those lines, something that. um you know, the team has tried out before, um, although admittedly with guys like Fernando Salas or, um, you know, or Jerry Blevins, who ended up kind of taking on more, you know, important roles and in some cases didn't really measure up and couldn't really handle them. Um, I <laughs> oh, poor, poor, poor Salas. Yeah, I really liked um until he got overused. And I mean, you could say the exact same thing about a lot of pitchers. It's really just about how you get that potential out of them. Jim Henderson's another good example. Um, you know, someone who got off to a good start, showed a lot of potential. Um, and then kind of like just, you know, progressively fell. I think that uh, these are players who, who I'm sort of looking at who, if you handle them properly, if you sort of try and exploit the things that, they're consistently capable of giving you and you do it with respect to, you know, their potential, you get something a lot more productive, something along the lines of what Addison Reed turned out to be. I mean, that's something I I can't stop thinking about really. I mean, people talked about by the time he got traded and the return, like the package they got back for him, it was like, it wasn't enough. You know, when they, the Mets gave up like Matt Koch, um, for him and barely anything else. I mean, this was like August waivers. Um, wasn't even clear when the Mets got him if he was going to be pitching in the playoffs for them, that sort of thing. But he pretty much became an elite reliever. Um, you know, these are this is sort of the kind of process that the, that the Mets sh- should definitely um, be looking at with, you know, with money ball glasses. Um, sure. And I think that, like you were saying, they have to, you know, they have to grab guys and kind of um, work to their strengths. Well, they also have to grab guys and take those strengths and apply them to their needs. I think that, um, you know, <sighs> filling out a bullpen is one thing. Filling out a bullpen with specialized weapons mm-hmm. is, is is another. And I think it's a more advanced way of, of, of building a relief core. And, um you know, the guys you listed certainly give a, a plethora of options. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it all depends on which direction this organization is going to go. And I think we could probably continue on that route for the next six hours, but uh, it's yeah. Sunday night. 
Sunday night. We have work in the morning. <laughs> um, finish. So which, uh, you know, I guess, uh, what are we expecting in the next few weeks? Do you think this is going to be a slow, drawn-out process as far as the whole free agent market? Or should we start expecting some sparks to fly? I think it's – I personally, me, I'm forecasting kind of a, a slow move. I think that there will be a few trades. Um, I think the teams may start um, looking in that direction first uh, just because there are a lot. I mean, you know, perfect example would be what the Red, you know, the Red Sox have going on for them right now, which is sort of a contract purge. Like teams are very self-conscious about financials and – I think they're going to try and avoid that for as long as they can, no matter how it, you know, limits the players and their options. Because really, you know, as we've seen across the last, you know, two to three years now, I think that um, there's a real division between players and owners. Um, And I think that there really haven't been any constructive signs that that's going to improve this offseason. I think we're looking at a situation where at least two, I'd say of the top 10 free agents uh, on any list, you know, MLB trade rumors, fan graphs, you know, the athletic, however they're projecting it. I think you're going to look at guys who are holding out again. Um, I think you're going to have, you know, more discussions along the lines of, um, you know, we saw with the Braves and with the Alex Anthopoulos comments as well. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on Tony Clark. Um, I think we're going to learn a lot. Uh, even if we don't, a lot of guys get signed. That's kind of a kind of a, a you know a negative foreshadowing there, kind of not encouraging. But um, I think it's going to be a while till we really see uh, teams making a splash. Although I, I hope I'm wrong. Knock on wood. Well, you know, it's appearance of the looking glass every year. Mm-hmm. We get to see um, at least get an outside looking in view of how these teams operate. And the last, few, the last couple of seasons were, were very concerning. Um, Antopoulos' comments also very, very concerning. Um, you know, if a soft market develops again, um, teams will adapt. Teams will take advantage of the soft market, but then players end up getting screwed in the end. And that's, um, it, it's once again, that's concerning. So, you know, there's going to be plenty to talk about over the next few weeks. Um, I know the C word, I'll whisper it, collusion, has been coming back into the uh, into the lexicon over the last few days with all these comments. Um, the whispers turned to, you know, audible yells by the end of last off season. Right. Um, something's you know something's got to give with the new CBA coming or you know however they want to address this. Um, Changes need to be made because uh, it's a billion-dollar industry, and you know, arguing over nickels and dimes really shouldn't be uh, part of the equation. But nevertheless, here we are. So, uh, on that note, Jack, I think we're uh, we've hit all our bases this week. Uh, you got anything coming out on uh, on Metsmerize or anything you want to plug? Um, not at the moment. Um, nothing that I can really think about. Uh, I'm sort of in this weird mode where I haven't been contributing as much as I would like to just because of the way college has sort of hit me, but um, continue reading us, continue, um, you know, keep that eye out for, you know, what happens with the bench coach developments. Um, You know, we didn't get, I think the results we wanted when we broke Terry Collins, but um, you know, we do have a lot of credibility and we have a lot of really talented writers and I'm really proud of what we've been doing. Um, so just continue if you know if if you're considering reading what we do if you're considering following us uh, by all means uh, please continue please continue supporting us uh, we really do appreciate it um, I don't have anything to plug at the moment though no uh, <laughs> just uh, if if the Mets are listening to this please I know we didn't talk about it please sign Yasmani Grandal please ah. get him behind home plate. Um, not going to take us down the six-hour path talking about it, but <laughs> I think that that's um, that should that should be really really important. Uh, high on. I think list. it should. I, I think that kind of accentuates the strength. It really plays into it. Um, you have such a talented group of arms here, whether it's the rotation or the bullpen. 
the best receiving catcher, the best defensive catcher in the majors would certainly be a, a plus for the, uh, for in the big picture. But again, Brody's going to have to do a little bit of heavy lifting on that. And the will ponds are going to have to justify most likely something like 150 or 200% increase for the, at the catcher position. When you're considering what Ramos was getting paid last year Mm -hmm. or what he's due to get paid this year and what they would have to uh, pay Grandal. If he's turning down 40 or $60 million contracts last year, you have to wonder, you know, where his head's at this off season. Um, yeah, that's certainly Jack. We're going to have you on for another uh, for another segment. Hopefully, uh, yeah. hopefully Grandel still on Grandel still on the uh, on the market there because this is this is going to be a good one. That could really I don't want to say it's, it could make or break the off season, but um, that's a that's a foundation building move, and uh, hopefully it's uh, it's on the uh, it's on the docket. Yeah, definitely. So that right. really appreciate it, Tim. Oh, uh, dude, this is this is so much fun. I thank thank you so much for coming on. And um, as always, guys, you know where to find us. Um, you can find listen to Simply Amazing wherever you listen to podcasts. It's iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, all those places. Uh, you can go on Metsmerize and find it. Uh, we'll have uh, another episode coming out end of the week uh, this week, and uh, hopefully right back with you again on Monday. So uh, as always, let's go Mets. Jack, thanks again for coming on. And, uh, oh, yeah, bro. Great time. And, um, we'll see you guys next time. Let's go, Mets. Let's go, Mets.